Uh, in a few weeks, Jake already mentioned, my favorite holiday of the year arrives, Thanksgiving. And I think it's that way because it seems to be the least adulterated holiday of the year, a holiday where we can just uh, seem, do what we should be doing on the day without much distraction. And we did start our Thanksgiving Eve service just a handful of years ago. I think it was less than five years ago that we started the service on the eve of Thanksgiving. And um, it's a great thing in the life of our church. I really do hope you join us. You may have family coming into town. Bring them with you. It's, we keep it to an hour. We recognize it can be a busy time. But gratitude is the currency of the Christian life. And gratitude toward God is where that begins. That's ground zero. If we're not thankful to God, we really aren't thankful people. And so uh, we've taken an opportunity to not invent a worship service on Thanksgiving Eve. Historically, this is something the church has done. But we have sought to bring it back because of its importance to us and the blessing that it does in our lives. It's like so many things that God commands us to do. He, he calls us to be grateful. But as we're grateful, God is glorified, but we're blessed through it, aren't we? The reason that I, I mentioned uh, the Thanksgiving Eve service is that in our passage this morning, we, <clears throat> we are talking about um, the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And the day of Pentecost in the Jewish calendar was a day of an, of an annual feast called the, fe the Feast of Harvests or the Feasts of Ingatherings, or sometimes called the Feast of Weeks. And... So, uh, you know, in the Greek, Pentecost just means 50. So essentially, uh, 50, it, it, Pentecost happened 50 days after the waving of the offering of Passover. That's, that's when the Jews would celebrate Pentecost. So 50 days after uh, the, the waving of their offering on, on Passover, the Jews would celebrate Pentecost. Pentecost happens to be 50 days also after uh, Christ's death and resurrection. And so here we are, 50 days, Jesus was resurrected, appearing to his disciples, teaching for 40 days. We've already read about, talked about that in the last eight weeks, uh, ch covering chapter one. Um, and here we are now in chapter two, 50 days, Jesus has been gone for 10 and so we have, I'm bad at math, but even I can get the 40 plus 10 is, is 50 days. Here we are, Pentecost. And this was the Jewish Thanksgiving day of the Old Testament. This was a day of giving thanks for all that God had done. God, the people gathered for a, a, a celebration, a service of thanksgiving in the central sanctuary of Jerusalem to give thanks to God for the harvest. So it's sort of fitting that as we approach our Thanksgiving, we find ourselves here. We're going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Our focus is going to be on verse 1. So would you stand with me, open your Bibles, or follow along on the screen as we read Acts chapter 2, 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost had come, they, the disciples and all those that were in the upper room, were gathered together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. 
Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phygeria and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you raise your hands and pray with me? Lord Jesus, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit now, as you did on the day of Pentecost, to show us things that we don't know, to cause us to experience new workings of your spirit. Father, I pray that you would um, enlighten our eyes, unstop our ears, and soften our hearts to hear from you. Father, I pray that my words would be faithful and true. And Father, I pray that we would all uh, hear your word with tender consciences and appetites this morning. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ who promised to feed us. Amen. Please be seated. So, <clears throat> this passage is a passage that we've been anticipating for a number of weeks now together, isn't it? We keep talking about this time when the Spirit would be given. Jesus promised it, and the disciples have been anticipating it. Today, we read about the account of what happened when the Lord Jesus sent his spirit into the hearts and the lives of his disciples. This should be a passage, if you're a Christian, that is near and dear to your heart. It should be one whose details we are familiar with, that we can recount. As we approach Advent, as we approach Christmas time, we look forward to Christ's coming and we think about the time that he came to earth. And I think that if we're honest, we would have all liked to be here when Jesus was on the earth, when Jesus was sent, when he had come. And this isn't an option for us. The Bible says it's blessed or more blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. God is not appointed that we live in the time period where Jesus came. But we all have had the experience of receiving the Holy Spirit if we are in Christ. We are living in a time where the Holy Spirit has come. I think that it's important to think about the Holy Spirit particularly, and we're going to spend a few weeks uh, in this chapter. It's important for us to think about the Holy Spirit because there is a lot of misguided thinking about him today. How he works what the proof of his presence is, uh, why was he given in the first place. And I think that one of the great uh, proofs that in the Western church at least, we are by and large devoid of a right understanding and the true power of the Holy Spirit is that we think that we can conjure him up 
and make him do what we want him to do. I think in the Western church, by and large, we think that we can actually control the spirit or force the spirit's hand. And you may say, I don't agree with you. Well, let's think about it a little more. You know, if we think, I think the church thinks that with the right effects, the right sorts of emotions, the right moods, we can somehow usher in or, or make the spirit do this or do that. I heard a song this past week for the first time, and it said this. It caught my mind just because I was thinking about this passage. You can impersonate revival if the price is right, sing his name up on the stage, and yet not let, live in the light. Revival's here and now. Signs, are one, signs and wonders fill the church. There's glory coming down, or at least it says so on our merch. You might be thinking, hmm, I can't really relate to that. Well, I think we can if we think about it, at least in terms of the church at large. And then I want to turn this and focus it in on us. A few weeks ago, well, it was probably a few months ago now, I was uh, on Facebook, probably looking at the marketplace. I don't know what I was doing, but I was on Facebook. All right, I admit it. And uh, I saw a, a little ad for, uh, for, uh, for a church. Um, and I actually screenshotted it because I think it highlighted in my mind this tragic problem that we have in the Western church. It had a picture of a, their auditorium, presumably, and there was like a mistiness in the center of it. And it said, the outpouring and big, bold lines across the top of the picture. And then, tragically, underneath, in red letters, italics, it said, canceled. Canceled. They had had an event, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, presumably. But for some reason or another, it needed to be canceled. And I thought, wow, what what a tragic picture to have to put up online. But it underscores this idea that is alive and well in the church at large. We have, um, in in the West, we have healings and miraculous signs and wonders. And I don't deny that the Holy Spirit still can heal and do do magnificent signs and wonders. I I won't, I'm not willing to bind the, the hands of the Holy Spirit on what he can do in the world. And yet, what we see in the West is that it is televised and for profit and fame and for the pocketbooks of those that are, that are doing those things and claiming those things. And you sit back and you wonder, hmm, is this the way the Spirit works? Is this what the Bible teaches? Is this true to the Scripture? I went to a, a conference a few years ago, and, um, you know, I, I, I went with my brother-in-law, Jonathan, and I'll, I'll never forget being there because um, one of the, the things that happened in, is during the worship time, they were sort of giving us, actually not really giving us instructions, which I found to be hard. They, we were all seated and, you know, the band comes in and swelling and this and that. And then they say, if you feel the Spirit stirring in you, stand up, you know, and within 10 seconds, most of the room was standing, except for Jonathan and I were kind of looking at each other and then people started looking back at us. And I'm not trying to be cynical, Okay, I'm going to address cynicism here in a minute. And so what we did, we just levitated right on up. I guess this is what we're supposed to do. It was specifically if you feel that, I think they were saying, if you feel right now the spirit convicting you of something or something, it was more pointed than just if you feel, you know, I thought, well, I'm thinking about this and suddenly everyone's turning around looking at me. But in a breakout session at that very same conference, um, they, they taught you 
things about how to really worship the Lord and how to usher in the Spirit. And they would use terms like, here's how you build the moment, right? Here's, here's, how, you, here's how you build emotion. And, you know, you just sit there and it's like, oh, this is pathetic. This is not the way that the Holy Spirit operates. The Holy Spirit is not on our ball and chain. We can't yank him this way or that way, even with technology. And so perhaps you're sitting here like myself and thinking, well, yeah, those lyrics are, they catch my attention. Um, or these airs are out there and I see them, but, but they're not where we're at. They aren't the things that I fall prone to. I've never worn a shirt that says, you know, the glory is coming down, you know. Um, and we can say, okay, what are we to learn from this? Well, there's an air that is just as bad, and it's actually, actually just the same thing as what I've been describing. It's just as bad as seeking to put the spirit in our box or to control him as our puppet, seeking to make him do whatever we want him to do. We are prone to responding to this idea by going in the opposite direction. So if they're going over there, I think that many of us go over here. And what we do is we go round and round and round and round, and eventually we actually go so far over here that we meet these people on the other side. And we're actually just where they're at, but by a different means. And what I mean by that is this. Um, we try to control the spirit as they do. But often our view, if we're honest, is our control of the spirit is through suppression. What we say he doesn't do. What we aren't willing to think he can do. When theirs is by dictation saying he's going to do this and he's going to do that. And so they, we, we respond to that and say, nope, he's not going to do this. Or at least maybe we don't say it, but that's how we live. Do you long for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Is this something that you desire? One of the things that I want us to come away from today and as we go through this passage is I want us to come away with a better and full, more full realization of our need for the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus to rule in our hearts and for the power of Jesus to rule in our lives and in the world around us. Not by might nor by power, but my, by my spirit, says the Lord. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, said that apart from me, you can do nothing. And of course, what that means for us is what the first passage I read says, apart from his spirit, right? He gives us his spirit. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But the problem is, is that for us, we really don't live that way. So often, so commonly, we think that it is actually by our own power. It's not extraordinary, it's by our effort, it's by our striving, it's by our uh, intentionality, it's by our sweat, or the capital in our bank accounts, or the influence of our personalities. Or even within the church, it's because of systems and follow-up processes, or our committees and the work that we do on the committees. We need to be suspect of our own reliance upon ourselves always, because what can you do in and of yourself? Well, the Bible answers that by saying nothing, nothing. While God has given us all the abilities I just mentioned, while he's given you the resources that you have to steward, all these things are sort of like sails, sails of a sailboat. They're there, but unless they're filled with air, unless they're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, there's no power in it, and you won't see movement. 
where we rely upon ourselves, I, I pray in my own life and, and on behalf of our church that God would allow us to repent of our arrogance and rely upon Him. Not just sit and do nothing, that's not what I'm saying either, but to really rely upon Him. I want to speak to you for the next few weeks about the Holy Spirit. Uh, first, this morning, we're going to consider the season of the Spirit's coming, and then next week, or next week we'll consider the, um, the way in which He came, and then potentially next week or in three weeks, we'll consider the effect of His arrival. What is there to learn about the season of the Spirit's coming? What are we to learn about the season in which the Spirit was given? The reason that we should start by considering the season is that while we cannot and should not seek to manufacture the work of the Spirit, there are certain things about the season of His coming or the season of His outpouring at Pentecost that should be taken note of because they are instructive for us. The first thing to realize is that there is such a thing as an extraordinary outpouring or movement of the Holy Spirit. That is baldly apparent in our passage. Now, some may take issue and say, well, wait a second, isn't everything that the Holy Spirit does extraordinary? Well, yes, in a manner of speaking, yes, it is. And yet, you're going to have to argue with, with Luke who writes in Acts 19, we read it last night as a family, it's that chapter 19 of Acts starts by saying, and now there were extraordinary acts of the Holy Spirit. So even Luke uses this type of language. There are times in specific seasons where there's extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit. And Christians should desire it. We can't manufacture it, but it should be our hope. The passage states, when the day of Pentecost had come, Jesus sent the Spirit at a particular time, on a particular day, in a different way than what had been the norm beforehand, prior to that moment. Well, what was the norm beforehand? Well, we're not going to give this a heavy, heavy treatment, but I do want to say a few things. First, we're told in John 7 that when Jesus was with his disciples on the last day of a great feast, he stood up and he said this. He cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his inmost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke in the spirit whom those who believed in him were ready to receive. I'm sorry, but this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were, were to receive, were to future for the Spirit was not yet given to them because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And so there was a time when Christ's Spirit was not given, at least in the way that he is given in the outpouring at Pentecost and since then. So where was he? What was he doing throughout the time of the Old Testament leading up to this point? Well, we need to be very clear here. The Holy Spirit has existed from all of eternity. The Bible teaches that there are three persons in the Trinity, in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, three persons, one God, the same in substance, and they are equal in power and in glory. This means that the Holy Spirit is an eternal being, and he is and was just as active and present throughout the, whole, the Old Testament time as Jesus or the Father was. He was there in the beginning at the creation of the world. 
His Spirit adorned the heavens in creation. That's what Job says. The Spirit came upon various people all throughout the Old Testament. How can you read the Old Testament? A couple of years ago, I preached on the book of Judges. And what was Judges but a recounting of man and woman that were touched with the power of God and the Spirit of God, and they spoke, they were, they were raised up as judges and, and did mighty and powerful works for the Lord amidst, amidst the nation of Israel after they had gone in and started conquesting the promised land. All throughout the book of Judges, there's talk of the Holy Spirit coming upon Deborah and Barak and different men and women throughout that book. Not just them, kings. You know, the Spirit came upon Saul, we're told that. King David spoke, speaks often in the Psalms of the Spirit speaking through him. So the Spirit wasn't absent. He wasn't dormant. He wasn't hibernating. And yet, and yet, he was active just as much as the Father or the Son. And yet, there's a marked difference between the way that the Spirit was given in the Old Testament prior to our passage and after Acts chapter 2. In the days of Moses, Moses asked, entreated the Lord that the Lord would put his spirit upon all the people. That was Moses' prayer. Would you, O Lord, place your spirit upon all men? The prophet Isaiah prophesied, saying, for God will pour out water on thirsty ground and streams on dry ground. This is the passage I think Jesus was thinking about that we read earlier. God's going to pour out water on thirsty ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. These requests, Moses' request of God, this prophecy of Isaiah, reach fulfillment in our passage. There's a particular outpouring of the spirit in a way that is different than in the past. The spirit now comes and indwells us. He lives in our hearts. That's what the scripture teaches. He takes up residence within us. The Bible says that when we come to love Jesus Christ, we are given his spirit, that we are actually born again. Think about our sermon this past summer on Nicodemus. We are born again by the power of the spirit. The spirit doesn't just change us and leave. The spirit is not like a short-term mission trip. I've been on a number of mission trips where you go to a place and you do good work and you seek to love the people that you're there with and after a week or a month, you leave. And there is a, some lasting effect, at least for some time, from your stay there. The Holy Spirit isn't like that. The Holy Spirit lives within us. He doesn't leave. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? It was on a particular day, the day of Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit was first given to his disciples. It was a particular time that was appointed by God. If every drop of rain has an appointed birthday on which to fall, if every single gleam of light that travels on its pathway through our hemisphere is predestined by God, if God is in control over those things, then the new birth, the salvation of a soul, occurs at an appointed time. Our new birth, our receiving of the Spirit is not left to chance or happenstance. The first point of application that I want us to really think about after do we desire a work of the Holy Spirit is a personal one. Uh, if, you were, if you are born again, 
It is because of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life at a particular time, in a particular way, in a particular season, of you hearing the message of the gospel with ears that were unstopped to recognize God's truth. And I ponder and wonder and think about, and I ask the same question to you, are you able to identify such times in your life where the Holy Spirit has worked in a particular way? Is there a time where you can say, or many times, hopefully, where you can say, here and here? Yesterday, I think Jake uh, thanked Randy for his talk. Is that who you thanked? Randy, yeah. Uh, I was thinking, I also attended that talk, Living Your Eulogy. And one of the things that um, Randy shared with us is that when he was 50, 60, 70, oh no, he was 60, 60 years old, the ageless man. When he was 60 years old, he was reading in the book of Romans, chapter 6. And his eyes came across the words, if you have been freed from sin, why do you still live in it? And he said in his breakout that after, you know, being in church for many years and even teaching on Romans, studying Romans before, the Holy Spirit worked in his life in that moment in a way that has changed him since that point. Of course, he still sins and he still needs to grow and we all do. And yet he recognizes a time when the Holy Spirit was working in his life personally to change him. If you've been born again, you've been given the Holy Spirit. And I want you to, can you say the same thing that, that Randy shared? Can you identify the work of the Holy Spirit in your life like this? Do you know his residence within your heart? Perhaps you wrestle with assurance of your salvation. There are those of you here this morning who love the Lord Jesus Christ and yet struggle with assurance of your salvation. I would say a few things to you. First, if you struggle with assurance, pray. Pray that God would make his presence known to you in a way that clears away all of your doubts. Pray that the Holy Spirit would work in your life in ways that are undeniable, that he would change you in such a way that Satan's accusations seem to almost be washed away in the tidewaters of God's love for you. Pray that, that God would do this in your life. God is always happy to do things for us to reassure us, and assurance is not promised to all of us, and there have been many faithful, wonderful Christians throughout the history of the church that wrestled with their assurance. And yet it's something I desire for you and you desire for yourself. So pray that God would give it to you. Pray that he would show you his work in your life. Second, look for how Jesus has equipped you to serve him and to serve him. In Ephesians 4, we're told that the Holy Spirit equips us to serve Jesus and to build up the body of Christ. Ephesians 4, Paul's talking about the, the work of the Spirit with regard to unity and service and how Jesus, you know, the works he created us for, good works, in Ephesians 2. He goes on to talk about how the Holy Spirit uses those, those gifts of God's grace in our life to unify us and cause us to serve one another and love one another. So the first, if you struggle with assurance, pray. Pray for the work of the Holy Spirit in your life to give you assurance and hope. Second, serve. Serve the Lord. Use the grace that the Holy Spirit is giving to you. The third thing I'd say is that 
You're to look for the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These will be born in your character. Maybe not all at once, but steadily and persistently born in your character. Uh, the, the property that we, we bought has a few apple trees on it. And uh, you'd think that s- since we have a few mature apple trees right in a row, we would have fruit. <laughs> I'd like to think so too. Uh, but these trees have been subject to the fall. And what I mean by that is they've been subject to disease, to worms, and to utter neglect. Right? The owner has not taken care of the trees, and so they do not produce the fruit that they should. The Holy Spirit is not like the trees. The Holy Spirit is perfect in all of his ways. He is powerful and able to accomplish whatever he seeks to do. If he's been entrusted to you and given to you, if he resides within you, then he has a purpose, and his, the purpose is to bear fruit. You recognize that. And he cannot help but over time bear fruit through you. It will be seen. That's what Paul teaches. He's not subject to the fall. So if you have the Holy Spirit, you'll bear his fruit. Maybe you look at your life and you don't honestly see any of the fruit I just mentioned or so little of it that what I'm saying is discouraging. Well, what I want to say is that Jesus is happy to share all good things with you, all that good fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. He's happy to share all those things with you, everything he's done. The Bible says that all things are shared with us in Jesus Christ. Have you guys ever been on an all-inclusive? Come on, admit it. It's honest hour. Okay, I haven't. But my grandfather did promise, uh, tell us we'd go on a couple of them, so I, I, it, we, he took us on a, a, some wonderful trips which I'm grateful for, but I think we all remember there was this one year where he said, we're going to go to some all-inclusive resort, and us as kids thought, ooh, I mean, I thought, unlimited ice cream every night, you know, I'm going to walk down there, oh, it's going to be great. I've never been on an all-inclusive. I have a soft spot for one, I think, um, but uh, I was thinking the closest thing that I've ever had to an all-inclusive is probably when I went overseas and lived with some people that were fairly affluent in Switzerland, um, I stayed with a family. And during that time there, um, they took a holiday to Cape Town, uh, South Africa. And they were gone for, I want to say like a month or something. It was was quite a long time. And my all-inclusive was a few days before we left, the lady that I stayed with, she took me to the co-op down the street and she literally said, Pick whatever you want. And then because I was fairly conservative, she just started throwing stuff into the cart. I mean, it was, I mean, I'm, this was, you know, year, over a decade ago, it was thousands of dollars of food for me, me alone, to eat. All inclusive, okay? I lived like a king for the month that they were gone. Uh, the reason I say that is that, um, you know, Jesus is all-inclusive. He wants to give you every single good thing that he has. There's nothing that you will need with Christ, and he wants to share it with you. He wants to share with you his adoption. 
the glory of adoption, of sanctification, justification, everything he's done for us, redemption, every good and faithful fruit that come as a result of those things, he wants to share. The most precious thing he wants to share is himself. He offers himself to you. And he promises not only to claim you as his own in heaven before his father on the judgment day, but he also promises to place his seal upon you right here and now. So he doesn't make you wait for that great day. He promises to give you a seal. If you've ever bought a home or maybe an expensive vehicle or something, you've likely put down with a house that's called earnest money uh, with, a, with something on Facebook, it's called a bribe, so that they'll keep it for you, right? <laughs> it's, it's money, so it's like holding money so that if you, you're saying, I'm going to buy this and I'm on my way, so the seller has reassurance that you're not going to back out. The Bible uses language like earnest money to refer to Jesus' commitment to those that love him. It says, he says, all that the Father gives me are going to come to me, and of those that come to me, I will certainly not cast out any of them. That's a promise of his grip on you, of his intention to, to purchase you with his blood, the fact that he's done it and that it's, the deal is done. You don't have anything to worry about. He's not going to sell it to the other guy because he offered 50 bucks more. The deal has been done. And then he puts earnest money on us. And I'm not trying to be crass. Um, 2 Corinthians 1.22 talks about the good deposit of the Spirit. He puts earnest money on us. He puts down a deposit as proof of his purchasing us. And, and the Spirit is talked about in that way. The Holy Spirit is the good deposit given to us. So if you're here this morning and you haven't come to see that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, if you haven't known the love of uh, his Spirit in your heart, then I would urge you to do this, imitate the apostles in the upper room. What were they doing? It was their chief and singular desire to receive the Holy Spirit. They would have nothing else until they received from Jesus what he had promised to send to them. And he gives you the same promise. It's extended to you. You're no different than the men who were, and the women who were up in the upper room. Whoever seeks after him, he will certainly not cast out. What good is it if a man gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what will he give in exchange for his own soul? Do not rest until you've secured peace with God through Christ and you've been given his Holy Spirit. Now, when thinking about the season in which the Spirit has been given, our own Pentecost, our own receiving of his Spirit when we come to faith and new birth is of first importance to you. And I've been speaking about that. Without that, nothing else matters. But of course, there are other things that matter, aren't there? What takes place in our passage on Pentecost is a first of sorts. The Holy Spirit is poured out on Christ's disciples. But as we move through chapter 2 and on to 3, 4, 5, 6, we are going to see that the disciples' great desire is that the Holy Spirit would work with power through them in the lives and in the hearts of those that they come into contact with. It is the disciples' great desire to see the commission carried out, but as that is happening, that it's not just their words. What are their words? An empty sail without wind. They need their words filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Their desire is to see the Holy Spirit work and to change the world as Jesus promised 
when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. They wanted the gift that they had been given and received to be shared with others. They wanted to see revival among the Hebrews. Paul wanted to see revival among those that weren't, the Greeks, the heathens, whatever word you want to use. Gentiles. I want to go back to the question I asked at the beginning. Do you desire an outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Of course, I I think we'd all say yes to that. But then we have to ask the question of ourselves, when was the last time that you spoke with God about that desire? When was the last time you entreated the Lord on the basis of that desire? When was the last time you initiated a conversation with someone else because of that desire within your heart? I mentioned that there are many abuses of the Holy Spirit today. People claiming special revelations, special words from God that go against what we have been given in the Scripture. Making fortunes off claims that they can channel the Spirit's healing power. And again, I'm not denying that the Holy Spirit can heal and does heal. But making their whole identity based off of and filling their pocketbooks because of it whipping up emotional frenzy and curating a sense of the Spirit's work through well-crafted experiences that leave us feeling a sense of awe. These abuses and misconceptions have likely left you feeling cynical about the work of revival and about the work of the Spirit. But if we become that way, I want to remind you that we join them in cuffing God's hands. We slap on one cuff and they go around the other direction and slap on the other cuff. We're doing the exact same thing. We try to control God by saying what he won't or can't do while they control him by insisting upon what he must do. It's really no different. Both are wrong. Both are not faithful to what the scripture teaches. And while we can't invent revival, we are cold-hearted and selfish if we do not desire it. We are cold-hearted and selfish if we don't desire the Holy Spirit to be poured out in our country, in our town, in our workplace, through us and around us. I want to point out two things from the text about the season in which the Holy Spirit is given. I've already said that it's a particular time. And then I want to mention two things as we close. The first is the second half of verse 1. So we're getting to the end of verse 1. They were all gathered together in one place. They were all gathered together in a singular spot. Now, this statement is relating to location. It isn't only about location, though. Their physical togetherness was only due to the unity that they had had based on their love for each other through the love of their Lord. If they weren't utterly committed to the Lord and to each other, there's no chance that they would have remained geographically united together in one spot. As a general instructive for you, listen, as a general instructive, the season of the Holy Spirit's outpouring is a season in which God's people are unified when they are together. Of course, there is a physical, locational dimension to to what I'm saying. The church gathers together And as we gather here together, this room is united in love for the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a powerful thing. 
That's an incredibly powerful thing, and I hope that we are expectant when we gather that the Holy Spirit will work with power in that gathering. And yet, there isn't a physical, uh, you know, the other thing, actually, I wanted to say, that there there is not a, a, a stadium in all the world that can actually contain the whole church. So there is something special about when we gather together. And yet, the passage says they were all gathered together in one spot. I'm trying to make the point that, yes, they were gathered geographically, and there's an importance to that. There's real power when the church gathers. And yet, even beyond the locational dimension of this truth, there is the idea that they are gathered in one heart and mind, that they are united and we must, have, we must have both things together. We're reaching a time where even in the life of our church, we may not be able to always be gathered in the same room for worship. That's a, a reality that we face. And yet, and yet, if we lose the unitedness, the togetherness of being a body, we've lost everything. We must have unity. We must be of one mind together. We can be together. We can be in one accord. We can be united as the disciples were. What I want to say is when there are no cold hearts, when there are no prejudices that divide us, when there is no racism that separates us or apathy that holds us down, no false doctrines, lies that separate us from each other, when no schism seeks to tear us apart, Basically, schism, you know, I'm offended at that person. I don't like that person. I, I refuse to forgive that person for what they've done. When those things don't exist in this group, in our family, in this church family, we may expect to see the Holy Spirit of God resting on us. Then we may expect to see an outpouring with power. This is true in our passage. It's also true throughout church history. As you read church history, you see where there is great unity, the Spirit often fills those times in great ways. When the church is, Christ's church is united in a love for the truth, it should be no surprise that the Holy Spirit goes forth. So we must be united together. The second thing that I want to point out about the season of the Spirit's coming is that there is a season where the church is not, it's a season where they are not just together geographically and not just in their love, but what are they told? What are they doing? We are told that they were together in prayer. If we look back to chapter 1, we read that all of the disciples were of one mind, and then it goes on and says, continually devoting themselves to prayer. Ten days has elapsed since Jesus' ascension. And in those ten days, they had resolved and committed to the work of prayer. And so pleading day and night, it's no great wonder that the silos of heaven should be unlocked and that the Holy Spirit come down like rain that Jesus speaks of when he promises to send the living water to those that seek him. But do we have the patience to remain unified for 10 minutes of prayer? Do we grow restless? Do our minds drift? Are our hearts not pulled in other directions? first here and then there, and then wondering and wandering, generally wondering when the person speaking is going to finish up. If we are to see revival 
First, we need to desire the work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, there are abuses, but we should seek it. It's right. If we seek it, if we're to seek it, if we're to be sincere in our desire for such a work of God in our time, it will not be seen in our declarations so much as it will be heard in our prayer and our supplications. And as I was thinking about this, I remembered the passage where Elijah desired, Elijah, Elijah rather, uh, desired to see rain fall from heaven. And he told King Ahab, expect it. It's going to happen. So he makes a big, bold declaration to King Ahab. And then what were we told? Well, we're told that he went up onto a mountain and he, well, he put his face between his knees and he prayed, actually. That's what we're told. Then he said to his servant, go up and look toward the sea. And so the servant went and looked and said, there's nothing. He came back and said, nope. So Elijah's praying. And Elijah says, go back again. The servant comes back and says, nope. And again, go look. Nope. And another time, seven times, Elijah sends his servant to go look to see for the rain. And it, up until the seventh time, that servant comes back and says, no. And I say this because Elijah prays. He's committed to prayer. He doesn't stop praying for what he desires the Lord to do. And that seventh time, the, the, his servant Gehazi says, behold, a small cloud, as small as a man's hand, is coming out from the sea. And I want to say if we pray like Elijah, Elijah or like the disciples, it should not surprise us that the Holy Spirit may come with the power like the rain did from the heavens. The testimony of the scripture is sure. When we ask with expectation, watch out. We don't declare what God will do. We don't have that power, but we can pray with expectation and we can speak about God's character with absolute authority and surety. I was thinking about this passage on Friday as I was trying to work on my sermon. And I spent a couple hours thinking about the passage and I sort of came away feeling um, convicted about my own lack of expectation of the Spirit. And I wasn't feeling like I was getting anywhere and so I decided, you know what, I'm just gonna um, pray that God would help me think, have better expectation of what he can do. And I'm gonna shut my laptop and I'm gonna drive up to the church office and try and, I don't know, do something else, you know? And um, I did, prayed, shut my laptop, left, and I started driving up here. I was, and I, on the way up to the office, I did something that is not typical for me. A few weeks ago, I went through with a friend, a house that my friend was interested in buying, and they made an offer, and so they are buying this house. And a few weeks ago, I was in the house looking through it with my friend, and I saw a picture on the wall that I happened to like, and I thought that the contents of the house were going up for auction. So I thought, you know, I'm, I'm kind of near that house. I'm going to stop and talk with the lady and see if she'll sell that picture to me. So again, if you invite me over, I'm not going to try and commandeer your photos, but this was the context, all right? So I just thought, I'm, I'm kind of near the house. I'm going to stop. What, what, what the worst they can say is no. Uh, so I stop, I pull into the driveway, and I drive up, and I knock on the door, and an 80-year-old lady comes to the door, and I tell her why I'm there, and and then she says, well, I'm not, it, you know, I'm not sure, but I'll get a piece of paper and 
she went inside, and then she hollered for me, come on in. You know, so I, I, now I find myself in this woman's kitchen. And uh, one thing leads to the, to the next, and we start talking about life. And, um, you know, the, the short of it is I was there for quite a while. I, I blew through a meeting I was supposed to have. And uh, it was unexpected. And while I was there, you know, I, the Lord put it up on my mind that, you know, here I've just prayed that God would do something, you know, that I would have better expectations of the Holy Spirit's work. And I thought, well, now I'm here in the kitchen of a perfect stranger. I might as well see about putting that prayer to use, you know. And so I was able to speak with her about the Lord and encourage her. And it turns out she had, she had, uh, her husband had passed away tragically just a couple months before. And so I think God used that time. And I think the, the reason I'm sharing that with you is not to say you need to go and ask your neighbor if you can buy their photo, but I share it with you to say that you know, I was convicted about my expectations with regard to the Holy Spirit's power. And I f- know that that morning the Lord gave me a, a, a sliver of realization of all the ways in which he can and will work if we seek him with expectation. And so I encourage you to, to desire the work of the Holy Spirit and to pray for it with expectation. And then you'll see doors open up and you'll have to think, well, I've prayed for this. I'm either going to be a, a coward if I don't walk through the door and, or I'm going to do it. And you do it. And you see God bless it and you see somebody else blessed. This lady is a, a dear, sweet woman and I, I do think she was encouraged. And so I'm, I'm grateful to God for that. We must be a church that desires and expects the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in our families, in the life of this country, We must not surrender notions of revival to those that seek to invent it in the wrong ways. But we must also seek it in the right way. The season of the Spirit's coming was one of unity and prayer and expectation. That's what we learn. You want to see the Holy Spirit's work in your life? Notice that this season was one of unity, prayer, and expectation. Do you long for the the, the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? Let's pray.